0: Good morning. How y'all doing today? Excellent. Hey, it's great to be with you. My name is John Anderson. Uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff here and part of the teaching team. Uh, special welcome to anybody who's here for the first time today. Uh, for whatever reason, you've decided to join us. We are so glad that you have. So welcome. Um, hey, one quick reminder announcement for those of you who consider uh, this your church family. Uh, you consider Door Creek your church home. Um, We are coming up on the end of our fiscal year uh, in just a couple weeks, and I just want to take a moment to say thank you uh, for how your generosity is helping all of us, and you're part of this, helping all of us better accomplish our mission here in our own city and around the country and really around the world. Uh, Let me just tell you one kind of cool, encouraging story from just this past week uh, to pass on to you. So here in our building this last week, we hosted 66 middle school students and a team of amazing Uh, leaders, and they were all part of something called Madison Missions. Here's their picture up there. Uh, Just a lot of puberty in that one little frame right there. (laughs) So awesome, so awkward. Um, Now, Madison Missions is a service uh, camp, and so they were staying here during the nights, but then during the day they would go out into the community to serve others in a whole variety of different ways. And I had the privilege of coming here this last Monday night and speaking uh, as part of their kind of nightly routine. And as a thank you, I got this t-shirt, which was awesome. Um, And the highlight for me really was every night they they carve out a little bit of time for the students to share stories. They call it God stories. And they have a little bit of time for the stories or students to tell stories about how they're seeing God work. Um, And listening to those was so cool. So this was students who were talking about how they were seeing God work in their own lives and the lives of their peers. Remember, this is 12, 13, 14-year-olds talking about how they were seeing God move as they were living out their faith uh, through service to others. And really, it's thanks to your generosity that we are able to have things like Madison Missions here or so many other programs that we benefit. And so I just want to take a moment and say thank you for being part of making that week and so many other things possible here. Now, I want to transition by asking a question. And today, uh, I'm hoping for a lot of participation, all right? So this might feel weird for some of you. That's fine. You don't participate then. But for everybody else... Here's what I want to ask you to do. Just by show of hands here in a moment, how many of you are fans of stand-up comedy? Do we have any fans here by show of hands? Awesome. I always like look for the funniest section. That's this one again. So (laughs) y'all win. Nice job. All right, so I will confess I'm a huge fan of stand-up comedy. Um, One of the things that so impresses me about a great performer is their ability to come up and share material uh, over and over again, but present it in such a way that it feels fresh every time. And I think part of the, my respect for that is because, like, I preached three times. I can't imagine doing it hundreds of times or, in some case, thousands of times. And uh, I think a great performer has this ability to share stories and make us laugh, tell jokes in a way that makes uh, being funny look so easy. And you don't realize how great they are at it until you see somebody who's not good at it. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> And one of the things that I think all the greatest comics throughout time have in common, there's probably other things too, but at least this one characteristic, is that they not only make us laugh, but in their material, they also reveal deeper truths about just kind of the human experience. Now, recently, I had uh, what I would consider a bucket list opportunity and experience. I got to see one of the people that I consider one of the great comics of our time uh, in person, a guy by the name of Jim Gaffigan. Do we have any other Gaffigan fans here? Yes! All right, I want to do like the Hot Pockets routine, but I will not do that to you. <laughs> For the, like the 80% of you who have no idea, just Google it. All right, it's, fu- it's funnier than it just sounded right there. So I, wow, awesome. <laughs> so I had uh, the chance to see him here in Madison at this little venue called the Comedy Club, which is right off of State Street in town. And I was so excited, one, because we got tickets, because there wasn't a lot of them. Um, so that in and of itself was kind of thrilling. But not only that, from what I understand of the comic world, if you're famous, the only reason you play in these small little venues uh, is to try out new material. And so I was like, oh, I get to be part of that process. That would be so awesome. And uh, I was not <laughs> disappointed. Like, I can't remember the t- last time I laughed so hard for that long. I left with, you know how like when you laugh really hard and your side just hurts and you're like, it's good pain. Ah. It was so funny. But what most impressed me was the first like 10 to 15 minutes of his bit because he opened up by talking about his wife having a brain tumor. And in fact, that was his opening line. And that's material I would never think could be funny, right? But with him, it was hilarious. (laughs) And at the same time, he exposed these core human realities. He talked about life and death and family And both my wife and I, as we left and even as we reflected on that night since, uh, have been so impressed by the ability of great storytelling and humor to expose these deeper human truths about ourselves and the world around us. Now, we might not often think of it this way, but the Bible actually has parts that are just like that. And today and over the next couple weeks, we are going to spend some time in one of those sections. And before we do that, let me just kind of make sure we are all on the same page, in case you're just joining us. So since January, we've been going through the Old Testament, and we're almost to the new. Whew. Uh, and this has all been part of a series called The Storyline, where we're going through the entire story of the Bible over the course of the year. The next three weeks, we are going to finish up our time in the Old Testament in the book of Jonah. And so uh, if you want to take your Bibles and find the book of Jonah, let me just say a couple things about it as you're looking for it. So Jonah is one of the Minor Prophets. Uh, There's several of these at the end of the Old Testament. They're all placed together. And they're called the Minor Prophets for nothing fancier than this. They're short. And so Jonah uh, might be hard to find. It's probably, in your Bible, only a couple pages long. And so if you're struggling to find it, don't be embarrassed. Here's my tip to you. There's something cool in the front of your Bible called the Table of Contents. (laughs) Go to that. And use that as your cheat sheet, right? That's not embarrassing. That's smart. So uh, as you try to find Jonah in a whole bunch of pages. Now, my guess is, especially, or not especially, but for those of us who have even been around like the church thing for a long time, the Minor Prophets are probably some of the books that we are least familiar with. Except, perhaps, for Jonah. <laughs> but here's the challenge. I think it's our familiarity with Jonah that actually becomes part of the challenge that we need to overcome because often in our kind of broader culture or even church culture, Jonah is reduced to this whimsical children's tale that's centered around a whale. Are you with me? I call this the Veggie Tales effect. Um, And here's the problem with it. There's no whale in the story. There's a big fish, but the fish only gets two sentences out of the entire book, so this is what I'm part of why I'm excited about this is my hope is, is over today and the next couple weeks that we're actually going to have the opportunity to see Jonah with fresh eyes. Now a couple other points of um, context just before we jump into the text together. So Jonah is referenced one other time in the entirety of the Old Testament. It's in 2 Kings uh, and he's talked about being a prophet who's living and active during the reign of Jeroboam II. So we know that jo- Uh, Jonah was a historical figure. However, there continues to this day to be a great deal of debate about what genre the book of Jonah should fall into. Um, Because Jonah is truly unique uh, in all of the Bible. And there's really two camps that I can kind of summarize these opposing, or these different views. Um, And there are people who love Jesus and have a high regard for Scripture that that believe both of these views. And they can be summarized this way. Some believe that Jonah... Is a satirical parable. Others see it as historical narrative with satirical elements. And if that debate or that contrast doesn't interest you, great. But it is an important dis- discussion. But here's the kind of the cool thing for us: is there's a whole bunch of overlap between those two views, and it's in that overlap that we're going to live uh, during this series. Now, the only other thing I'll say before we jump in is that the book of Jonah is full of extreme. Language. It is over the top storytelling. In fact, the word great is used 15 different times in this short little story. And because of this over the top extreme language, it adds to the humor and the irony, as we'll see. I am convinced that Jonah is a funny story, but here's the challenge with the humor (laughs) it's so easily lost on us, both because of translation of language, right? So loss is a lot there, but even more so between the translation of an ancient culture and our modern culture. But my hope is is that what we'll see together is that the author uses humor and irony and satire as a storytelling device to point out flaws in our own hearts. And think of it maybe uh, much like modern-day satire, where there's this uh, over-the-top humor that's used to make a point. So with all that set up, are we ready to dive into this a timeless and yet often misunderstood story. Are we ready together? You've had time to find it now? All right, you're like, I wasn't listening to anything, but I found it, so that's cool. (laughs) All right, let's read this. We're going to go through the first two chapters together today, starting in Jonah 1, chapter, or verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Okay, let me just pause right away because there's actually a lot happening in these first couple verses that are so easy to miss. I just want to point out three quick things. First of all, look back at the text and see the word Lord. Do you see something unique about this? How is it different than the other words? It's in all caps. This is where we can like participate with together. It's totally cool. It's in all caps, right? So this is a clue for us. Uh, When we see the word Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, this is a reference to using the name of God or how we pronounce the word Yahweh. And so as I read this, I'm going to try to be faithful to that uh, as part of the story. The second thing to note is that the name Jonah, son of Amittai, uh, literally means dove, son of faithfulness. Now, the original audience, they would have known this, and this is important for us to remember because it sets us up for a joke in verse 3. The third thing I'll quickly point out is that Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, is significant. And it's significant because it was the capital of Assyria. And at the time, Assyria was the greatest nation uh, in the known world. And therefore, Nineveh was a great city within this great nation. And the Assyrians, they were famous for how ruthless they were to other nations. And even as I was preparing for today, I was reading some of these records describing in graphic detail the things that they did to their enemies. And if I were to share that today, this sermon would quickly become X-rated. You would be, like, actively filling out comment cards as I talk. So I'm not going to do that, but just trust me when I say, like, it is truly chilling stuff. And it's important that we remember through the story who the Ninevites are. They are part of the Assyrians, and they are some of the most ruthless people imaginable. So with those kind of facts locked in the back of your head, let's continue the story in verse Three. But Jonah, remember this is Dove, son of faithfulness, Jonah ran away from Yahweh and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from Yahweh. Let me just pause again. This is hilarious, right? <laughs> Nobody laughed. <laughs> Nobody's laughed yet, so don't feel bad. Like I said, the humor is easily lost on us, but there's some really funny things happening here. So look right away. What does Dove, son of faithfulness, do? He runs away. He's unfaithful. He does the opposite of his name. And where does he go? He goes to Tarshish. We all know where that is, right? <laughs> no, but the original audience did. Let me show you a map of where he went. So he's called the Nineveh, 550 miles to the east. He goes to Tarshish, <laughs> 2,500 miles to the east. To the west. This was going to the edge of the known world. He was getting as far away as possible. And so here's the humor is that the prophet of Yahweh, who should have known better than anybody else that nobody can run away from God, is trying to do just that. So we know right away in the first couple sentences of the story this is not going to work, Jonah. And why, why does he run away? Well, we know the answer because he tells us in chapter 4, verse let me share this verse with you. The words will be up on the screen. He says this. This is Jonah talking to God, He says, "That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. All right, so he runs because he knows God's character. He knows that God is gracious, and he's afraid that God's going to be gracious to the Ninevites. This is, again, irony that the prophet of God is afraid that God's going to be good to somebody. But this becomes a theme for the whole book. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's go back to the story. Let's continue reading it together in verse 4. Remember, he's gotten on a boat. He's running away from God. Here's what happens next. Then Yahweh sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and cried out to his own God. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, Tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Okay. So Jonah, he's trying to run away from God, right? But God has other plans, so he sends this great storm. Now we see the sailors. These are sailors who, this is what they do professionally, right? So they've seen a lot of storms And their lives, but they know that something is unique about this storm and they fear for their lives. In fact, they've gotten to the point where they're throwing the cargo over the ship, right? So that's significant because that's their livelihood. This is how they pay the bills. And in their terror, they are starting to call out to any God they can think of, just hoping that they who will appeal to the right one. But where is Jonah in the story? He's sleeping. Again, this is funny right? Like, people are freaking out. People are about to die. The ship is going crazy, and Jonah's taking a nap, (laughs) and so they go down, and they wake him up, and they find out that he's responsible, and so they fire off five quick questions, and I especially love question number two, because they ask, what kind of work do you do? Now, as we're about to find out, we're going to find out that he, when he got on the boat, he told them that he's running away from God, and now they want to know what he does for a job, (laughs) Like, how does that answer going to go? He's like, well, I'm, uh, I'm kind of professionally a, a prophet for Yahweh, the God that I said I was running away from. So, like, <laughs> obviously that's not going well. <laughs> right? We're meant to, to laugh here. And, but he does give the answer uh, to their questions in verse 9. So let's pick that story back up there. He says this. He answers their questions. I'm a Hebrew, and I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, What have you done? Because they knew he was running away from Yahweh because he had already told them so. <laughs> the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, What should we do to you, or uh, to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. <laughs> okay, again, so this is meant to be funny. Because in verse 9, Jonah, when asked all these questions, he gives a a really solid, orthodox answer. It's full of just, like, good, solid truth. But it's also dripping with irony. (laughs) Because he's saying, I am the prophet of Yahweh, the prophet of God, who both made the land and the sea, (laughs) and I'm on a boat trying to get away from him. (laughs) So that's not going to (laughs) work. And who do we notice as we look back? Who is it that has faith in God? We can, again, we can, like, participate. It's totally cool. <laughs> Nobody else is watching, y'all. It's the sailors, right? It's the sailors. It's not who we would expect. And so throughout the story, again, our expectations, almost every time, are flipped on their heads. And so it's the sailors who correctly identify the, the reality of who Yahweh is and his power to calm this storm. They're the ones who have faith and believe. And so they come to Jonah, and they say, what should we do? And Jonah says, throw me overboard, Now, initially, uh, we might have the tendency to give Jonah more credit than I think he's due here and feel like, what a noble act, right? Like, he wants to sacrifice himself for the sake of others and save their lives. But as we look closer at the text, we realize this storm is because of what he's doing. And this is really a final attempt by Jonah to try to evade God's call on him to go to the Ninevites, right? So the boat thing is not working out. So what he's going to try now is just throw me into the sea, right? If I can't get away from God any other way, that's got to do the trick, But we see that the the sailors, they're more righteous than Jonah. And so they try to save his life as we're about to see as we continue the story. So let's pick it back up. Verse 13. So he says, throw me over. This is what happens. Verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to Yahweh, Please, Yahweh, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Yahweh, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared Yahweh, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows to him. Okay, so yet again, this is becoming a pattern here, we see the unexpected take place. So they throw Jonah overboard, and the storm calms. And the sailors, they respond in faith to God. We see in verse 16 that they fear Yahweh, and they made vows and sacrifices to him. And so, so far in the story, it's the pagan foreign sailors that express true faith in God, not the prophet of God from God's people. Now, it could be easy for us, up to this point in the story, for us to judge Jonah. In fact, I would argue that that's exactly what the author is trying to get us to do. To think things like, what a terrible man of God this is. (laughs) Like, what a ridiculous disconnect between right uh, belief and obedient living. But as we have these thoughts, Jonah has the ability to be like a mirror that turns on us and reflects our own tendencies to want to run away from God's desire to extend his grace to all people. Now, if the story were to end right here, what would we assume has happened? He's dead, right? Like when you throw someone overboard during a storm, in the water, dead. You guys, some of you are like giving me confused looks. Like These are not hard questions, all right? <laughs> all right, this is what we assumed would take place. If, this was, if we were reading the story for the first time or hearing it for the first time. But yet again, the unexpected happens. So let's continue on in verse 17. Then Yahweh provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God. He said, In my distress, I called to Yahweh, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Yahweh my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Yahweh. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, and remember where he's writing this from, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from Yahweh. Okay. So Jonah is thrown into the sea, right? Into almost certain death. And then what happens next? A big fish comes up and swallows him. Now, again, not a trick question, y'all. What happens when a fish eats you? You You die, right? This is what we would expect. But instead, the fish becomes this unexpected vehicle of God's grace. And what follows is, again, humorous because of the juxtaposition of images. So where's Jonah? He's in the belly of this fish. So it's dark. It's wet. It's cramped. It smells bad. We don't know exactly what all it was like, but we can probably assume those kinds of things were true. And it's in that context that he crafts some of the most complex, beautiful Hebrew poetry in all of the Bible. And so we get this like funny juxtaposition of images, right? And this beautiful poem, this beautiful prayer is all about celebrating God's power to save even in the most dire of circumstances. And then immediately following this beautiful, hope-filled poem, Jonah is brought back from the dead. And then the chapter ends with this one final contrast of images, right? So we've just read this beautiful poem about God saving, and then we hit verse 10. And Yahweh commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I love this. So it's like beautiful poetry, pile of puke on the sand. Again, I think we're meant to laugh at this, and and this is where we will end our story for today and we'll pick things back up next week. So so far in the story of Jonah there's all kinds of parallels already between this story and the gospel uh, found in Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. So we expect that the great fish is going to be this vehicle of death for Jonah that's what happens when you're eaten by a fish and yet he's in its belly for three nights and three days and then He's brought back to life. And it's not only new life for Jonah, but it's also grace for him and for all of Nineveh. And in the same way, the cross, this was an executioner's tool. And for whoever hung on it, it meant certain death. And yet Jesus died on the cross, was put into the ground for three days and three nights, and emerged having defeated death and given grace to all. And also we see in the story of Jonah That God's grace, it goes beyond borders, it goes beyond stereotypes. It's this grace that breaks down religious walls, and it's extended to the most unlikely of characters, the pagan sailors, and even enters into the most violent of societies. It's this grace that pursues those who we would consider the furthest from God. And we even see that grace is extended to the really religious person who's fleeing from God. And this is the same grace that we see in the life and person of Jesus, right? He was the one who loved the widow. He spent time with the orphan. He touched the sick. He loved the outcast, the foreigner, the prostitute, the tax collector, even the religious leaders, and the the criminal who hung on the cross next to him. And Jesus extended generous grace to the point where it deeply offended the most religious leaders of his time. And Jesus really embodied Jonah 4 too. He is the God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. So what does this story have to do with our lives today? I think Jonah serves as a mirror to us as readers, and it challenges us through humor, and irony and satire with a really important, serious question. And the question is this. How do we feel about a God that loves our enemies? A God that wants to extend radical grace to all? Now, just as a reminder, the definition of grace is unmerited favor. Right? So it's giving good gifts that are, are not deserved. And grace is one of those things that we love to talk about when we gather, especially uh, gather like this, right? We, we as Christians love to talk about grace. We sing songs about grace, right? We affirm intellectually that we are saved by grace alone. And, and, and grace is great, but it becomes a lot more difficult when it moves from a theological concept to a way of living, right? Because grace is easy <laughs> until it's being extended to people we don't like. And Jonah, it invites us to wrestle with this idea of God's grace for all people. And to reflect on whether or not we are people who have been truly transformed by his grace for us. Now, in one of my favorite uh, books of all time, a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. This is a pretty old book at this point, but the author is Philip Yancey. And he retells this, this story of really incredible grace or makes us wrestle with it. So let me just read part of it. This is a story about a serial killer here from Wisconsin. Here's what he writes. In November of 1994, mass murderer Jeffrey Dahmer himself was murdered. Beaten to death with a broom handle wielded by a fellow prisoner. Television news reports that day included interviews with the grieving relatives of Dahmer's victims, most of whom said they regretted Dahmer's murder only because it ended his life too soon. He should have had to suffer by being forced to live longer and think about the terrible things that he had done. One network showed a television program taped a few weeks before Dahmer's death. The interviewer asked him how he could possibly do the things he had been convicted of. At the time, he didn't believe in God, Dahmer said, and so he felt accountable to no one. He began with petty crimes, experimented with small acts of cruelty, and then just kept going further and further. Nothing restrained him. Dahmer then told of his recent religious conversion. He had been baptized in the prison whirlpool and been spending all his time reading religious material given to him by a local minister. The camera switched to an interview with the prison chaplain who affirmed that Dahmer had indeed repented and was now one of the most faithful worshipers. Our discussion tended to divide between those who had watched only the news programs on Dahmer's death and those who had watched the interview with Dahmer. The former group saw Dahmer as a monster and any reports of a jailhouse conversion they dismissed out of hand. The relatives' anguished faces had made a deep impression. One person said candidly, crimes that bad can never be forgiven. He couldn't be sincere. Those who had seen the interview with Dahmer were not so sure. They agreed his crimes were heinous, beyond belief. Yet he had seemed contrite, even humble the conversation turned to the question, is anyone beyond forgiveness? And no one left that evening feeling entirely comfortable with the answers. So the question hangs out there for us. Is there anyone beyond God's grace? And I know that there's some of you here in this room listening right now, and you know your own story, you know the things that you've done, you know your life right now. And you believe that there is no way that God could offer you forgiveness right now for where you're at in life. And yet here's the amazing and sometimes offensive truth about God's grace. Is that he wants to offer you new life and new hope right now. Right as you are, not as who you should be. And that is a beautiful thing. And for all of us, we need to reflect on the question of who are the people? Who is it that we struggle to extend grace to? And we all have those people. We need to be honest about that. We all have those people. Maybe it's somebody who's hurt you deeply. Maybe it's somebody who, uh, maybe it's a group of people whose worldview is so other than your own that you just want to have like nothing with those people. Who is it that if God were to call you tonight to go and be in community with them and show them the love of God, that your first reaction would be to run the opposite direction to go to your Tarshish. (laughs) Like, who is it that are your Ninevites? And as I've been wrestling through this passage and trying to just, you know, apply it to my own life, I've been struck by the challenge to pray this prayer that God would soften my heart and to give me opportunities to extend grace to others in the same way that it's been extended to me. And so I just uh, want to invite you into that same challenge, that same prayer. I want to encourage you to pray that God would soften your heart, that you would be people who extend grace to those around you in the same way that it has been extended to you. Because we live in a broken, fractured, divided society, don't we? And stories of, of grace, they're hard to come by. It's much easier for us to surround ourselves by people who look like us and think like us and act like us than it is to extend grace to those that we don't really like. Or take it even a step further, to those who are our enemies. yet that's exactly what God did for us. We see it described in the New Testament as while we were still God's enemies, He died for us. And so when we extend grace to those around us, we enter this alternative reality known as the kingdom of God. And this is God's way of showing the world that there is a better way for those who are following Jesus. And so here's my hope for us as a church, is that we as a community would be part of that better way. That we, when we gather together, that we would extend radical, sometimes offensive, grace to one another. And just as importantly, perhaps more importantly, as we go out, into the world around us, into our lives between Sundays, that we would be a people who extend radical grace because of a God who's extended it to us. And as we do that, that people will see the true nature of the God that we say we serve, to his glory. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for the story of Jonah for the laughter and the humor, but how also it points to our own hearts and hopefully causes us to reflect. On our, Are we people who have, in the fabric of who we are, accepted your grace and let it transform us? And um, Thanks, that that's a lifelong work that you're up to in our lives. And I just pray that you would help us to be a people of grace because of your grace for us. Help it to go beyond a concept into a lifestyle and that we might be even a church that's known for that. And when people think of us, they think of people who are radical in extending their grace. Your name.